Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. 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 Hi, this is Mark Arnold. I'm a comic book animation pop music historian, and welcome to the Fun Ideas Productions podcast. And with the encouragement of people like Lee Hester of Lee's Comics and cartoonist Donna Barr and Greg Beta, among many others, I've been contemplating doing a podcast for some time now. I did have some concerns and some reservations, because as a broadcasting major graduate, my attention to quality was important, and I didn't want to do some slapdash thing. And another concern is I don't necessarily have the time to do one. Plus, I don't necessarily have the production skills to create a show, since my background was always in video and not audio. In any case, I've struggled with this for a while, but have persevered through it, and, well, here it is, warts and all. Another thing I wasn't sure is if I was going to do what I was going to do is focus on any one of my diverse interests. I mean, do I do a podcast solely on Harvey Comics, or on Total Television, Total Television Productions, or on De Patty Freeling, or on the Monkees, or the Beatles? Uh, the answer kept coming back as a resounding yes to all the above. Then the problem occurred to me of what to call the Verschluggener thing, and. I've asked people, but since I've used the name Fun Ideas for about 25 years, I realized, hey, why don't I just call this podcast the very same thing? So now here we are. And I may stumble over my words, but in general, I plan to do the show live with no retakes. And the only edits would be if I have any pre-recorded interviews or something else, or drop in some songs. Uh, For this first one, however, I'm not going to be too fancy, and I'm basically introducing myself and what I do. And see if I can blab for about 30 minutes or so without stopping. So there's not going to be any Dr. Don-type drop-in sound effects, or to be less dated, Sven Gulli-type drop-in sound effects. If I can get a staff of more than one someday, maybe the production values can go up. So Anyway, I, I'm also re- I also really don't know how many people are going to be listening to this, so here we go. I'm not going to keep any consistent schedule like my friend Stu Shostak does with his video podcast or with Gilbert Gottfried with his podcast. Heck, this might be the only episode I ever do, but I hope not. But I really don't want to commit to anything uh, more worthwhile or longer or whatever, as this first episode is really just an experiment. As for me, my name is Mark David Arnold. I was born in San Jose, California on December 15, 1966, uh, but I've never officially lived in San Jose. That's just where the hospital was. I grew up in Saratoga, California, and at age six, my family moved to Palos Verdes Estates, and at age nine, we moved back to Saratoga. Age 20, I moved out to San Francisco, and I lived there for 10 years, and in 1996, I did four months in Florida. Not time, but 
I lived there for a while and then um, moved back to Saratoga again for 18 more years. Um, in 2015, I moved to Eugene, Oregon, where uh, National Lampoon's Animal House was filmed back in 1978, or I guess 77. And in 2018, I moved to Springfield, Oregon, which has been revealed as the official home of The Simpsons. And if you don't believe me, check with Matt Groening. Anyway, uh, at this point, I have about, let's see, 26 minutes to go. So, um, have you lost any interest yet? Gosh, I hope not. So anyway, more about me. Hmm. As a child, uh, comic books were always around the house, and I remember most of them today, and I still have most of them. Uh, I had a Casper comic called Friendly Ghost Casper, number 110, and there was a Wendy Witch comic called uh, Just Wendy the Good Little Witch, number 44, and those I still have. Um, They've been with me since I was born, so that's over 50 years. Um, had a Scooby-Doo comic book, I had a Mighty Thor comic book, uh, a couple March of Comics, uh, there's one on Yogi Bear, uh, one on Three Stooges, so I still have those. Um, Underdog comic book from Charlton, what else did I have? I had to strain my brain. There was a pocket book, a uh, paperback, um, called Archie Makes the Grades, so that was my first comic book exposure to Archie. Um... Now I'm really straining my brain. But anyway, I kept most of those comic books. Some of them I've sold. Uh, oh no, I sold part of my collection. But <laughs> um, probably the longest uh, live purchase I've ever done is uh, Mad Magazine, uh, where I first saw it. Uh, my sister pointed it out at the newsstand at the grocery store. And it was, the first issue I ever saw was Mad Super Special number 14. And it had these crazy Don Martin posters, and I pointed it out to my mom, and she actually bought it for us. I still have the issue now. Um, Then I I started buying Mad regularly, uh, but not immediately. I mean, I didn't know how magazines worked. I was pretty young. I was only seven years old. And uh, I would just read Mad at the barbershop. And, uh, well, after, you know, a few times, well, the, the... everybody was reading those mad magazines so they got pretty thrashed so eventually they were probably either stolen or thrown away or both and so I I really liked what I read in mad so I started buying it regularly and uh, the first issue I ever got was number 172 in January of 75 and uh, have purchased it ever since so I'm a you know complete mad addict since 1974 um, my dad said, I read Mad when I was a kid. And I go, really? And I didn't believe him until they did a reprint of one of the Mad comic books. And he goes, that's what I used to read. And I go, wow, I didn't even know Mad was a comic book. Uh, soon realized the history and everything like that. And, um, you know, I branched off to reading Cracked and Crazy and Sick and all those other ones, National Lampoon. And... Uh, started reading more Harveys and Archies and basically anything non-superhero. It's not that I didn't read any superhero stuff. There was a time where I was collecting Superman and Spider-Man and Fantastic Four, but my first and main love has always been uh, the non-superhero stuff and particularly the Harvey 
line of comics with Casper and Richie Rich and Wendy and Little Dot, Little Lada and Little Audrey and Stumbo and Spooky and Sad Sack and is that everybody? Jackie Jokers and Hot Stuff and I think I got all the main ones. There's Nightmare and Ghostly Trio and blah 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 blah. Anyway, um, this is why I didn't want to do solely about Harvey. Probably everybody would be asleep by now. So, um, also got really interested in animation, wanted to be an animator at one point, and uh, have always been a huge fan of Looney Tunes, particularly the Bugs Bunny cartoons, and fan of Disney and Fleischer and Famous Studios. Not so much the Terry Tunes, sorry, but, you know, I, I respect them. Uh, love Jay Ward. Uh, I've liked Hanna-Barbera. I like it more now. I liked Filmation. I like it more now. And I've always liked to Patty Freeling. And going into my musical tastes, yeah, I like uh, Beatles, Monkeys, Turtles, Rolling Stones. You know, I was kind of stuck in the 60s for a while back in the 80s when I was in high school. But suddenly the 80s music caught on for me and I started getting into... Uh, the Talking Heads and uh, In Excess, and uh, but my favorites were Thompson Twins and Art of Noise, and um, later Depeche Mode, and certain ones I couldn't stand at first. I became a bigger fan later, to like Duran Duran and things like that. Um, have other tastes of, you know, just like old movie comedies. I love comedy films in general. I love comedy albums. And so, you know, overall, just basic diverse interests. Um, I love old TV shows, particularly old sitcoms. And uh, that's pretty much about me. Now, I was kind of like those proverbial nerds that you see on like, a show like Big Bang Theory. And uh, because, you know, in the day when I was a kid, in the 70s and 80s, you know, you were kind of isolated as being nerds. Uh, you know, people liked comic books that I grew up with, but they weren't in love, love, love with them. And comic books were just it's coming out in the stores versus, like, being in the grocery store or the liquor store or the uh, drug store. Yeah, it's unbelievable, but, yeah, that's where they used to sell comic books. And um, the first comic store I ever stepped into was in Palos Verdes area, actually it's Torrance, it's called the Old Comic Bender, and I believe it's still there, I don't, I don't remember, it's been there a long time, and that was the first time I saw, like, old issues of Mad, and I remember seeing an older issue, uh, which was grotesquely overvalued, uh, like, it was like Mad 56 or something, and it was $60, and this was in 1974, but uh, the price guide had just started coming out, and so, you know, people weren't locked into pricing and prices as they are now. Um, my regular, I started going to comic stores regularly in 1977 because there was other ones that opened up by the time I got back to Northern California. Uh, there's Atlantis Fantasy World, which still exists to this day, in Santa Cruz. And I used to go to one called Comics and Fantasies, and then I mentioned Lee's Comics. He started in the 80s and 82, and he's still around. Comics and Fantasies is not. Uh, there used to be this old store called Comic Collector Shop, long gone, but then it got uh, re reinvigorated by new owners. I'm just rambling. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, what else can I say? Um, I've been buying comic books ever since. Uh, there's a long, there's a chain that used to have a, about twelve stores, I think, at its peak, called Comics and Comics, and it stretched all the way from the San Jose area all the way to Sacramento, but. Uh, you know, through just natural attrition and just bad management and management changes, uh, they finally all fell apart about 20 or so years ago. Anyway, um, that's a little bit about me uh, as far as my interests. I never really thought that uh, I would be a writer. In fact, um, when I was in high school, uh, I thought I was going to be a comic strip artist. You know, I really idolized, like, Charles Schultz and people like that. And I would draw little comic strips all the time. Um, but one thing I never really got into, and this is probably what ended my love of doing a regular comic strip, is I never was enamored with the format of how you're supposed to do a comic strip which you're supposed to get Bristol board and you're supposed to use India ink with pens and uh, permanent ink, India ink like that and um, draw it a certain size up like twice up or one and a half times up and things like that and I was just content taking out a sheet of eight and a half by eleven paper and drawing with a pencil or felt pen and that was it and uh, but that's not the way, quote-unquote, to do it. So I realized if I can't do it my way, it's probably not going to be a good way to do a comic strip. I did do some early submissions, and I got some nice rejection letters, but I just didn't have the gumption to keep going. Uh, then I had a, a dalliance in wanting to be an animator, and this is in the early 80s when animation was at its ebb, the lowest ebb. Um, like the highlight on the Saturday morning season was like Rubik the Amazing Cube. And I said, wow, this is really pathetic. I don't want to work on, sh on crap like that. <laughs> so um, because of that, I lost interest. My, also because my dad didn't really want to pay for an education for me to go to CalArts. So um, went through high school, didn't know what to do. Uh, my dad says, you know, you need to go to college. I didn't know what to go into, but I always liked TV and movies, so I started taking classes on how to make TV shows and movies. And my initial thought was I'd be a director, as everyone else does, and then I thought of being camera and everything else like that. Uh, but then I found out that I like to write. And I, I used to write scripts that were shot on video with uh, friends of mine. I had a longtime friend named Dane Andrew, and uh, he and I used to shoot little comedy videos. We did a couple comedy shows that were half hour long uh, back in the 80s, and then uh, we worked on a lot of videos where we interviewed celebrities and things like that over the years. That lasted for about 20 years. And... Um, but uh, what I found out is if I didn't have to write to somebody's, you know, uh, specifications, like the reason why I hated writing in high school is because they'd say, okay, you read this book, uh, The Great Gatsby, just one that we had to read, example. Now write a book report about what you liked and what you didn't like about it. And it's like, ugh. ugh. 
you know, I, I, I didn't like it very much. I mean, I know it's a classic novel, um, but I'm not big on novels. I like to read nonfiction uh, histories and autobiographies and uh, um, biographies of uh, people and places and things more than novels. I've had, I've read my share, but I stopped reading novels about 20 years ago saying, I just can't do it. The last one I tried to read was about five years ago, and I finally read Stranger in a Strange Land. It was good, but I said, that's it. I can't I want I like nonfiction. That's just where I'm at. Or if it's humorous, I like that. Anyway, I'm getting off my subject. I don't even know where I'm at. Um, so I found out I liked writing, and then I wanted to get published. Well, nobody would publish me. We're talking about the early '90s by this point, and so since nobody would publish me and it wasn't like you could email somebody there was no email you could send letters but I didn't know who to send to uh, and I got rejected so many times in the comic strip so I just said you know I'll just publish myself and so I did I, I, I call it the little red hen attitude and um, somehow crazily it worked and I really enjoyed writing and um, Originally, I just wrote little articles, uh, and I didn't know what to do with it, but uh, there was a, um, I used to subscribe to little fanzines, because before Facebook and you, and websites and things like that, there was nothing to, you know, if you wanted to learn about something, you had to send away for these little self-published things. And there's this one called the Frostbite Falls Far-Flung Flyer, which I said before, uh, I was a big Jay Ward, Rocky and Bullwinkle fan, and this guy, Charles Ulrich, was publishing it at the time, and one day I just got curious and I asked him, how do you publish this, and who reads this, and how many subscribers, and do you make any money off of this? And, you know, he answered all my questions, it was very helpful and everything like that, and I said, wow, I could do that. And so, my initial thought was, uh, okay, I want to do a fanzine. Uh, what subject? And my initial thought was to do something on Disney. I don't know why, looking back on it. Uh, but probably because, you know, oh, yeah, well, people like Disney. There's lots of stuff about Disney. But I had friends like Dana Gabbard, who was doing the Duckburg Times at the time, and he said... Yeah, I wouldn't do Disney. Disney gives you grief about copyrights and everything like that. So I kind of said, mm, what can I do that will kind of not be challenged by copyrights so much? Even though, you know, I had my run-ins and issues over the years, which I won't go into, at least on this time of the podcast. Uh, and it was my ex-wife, Amy, who actually suggested... Uh, why don't you do it on Harvey Comics? You like Harvey Comics. And I said, well, I don't know. There's nothing much written about it. And she said, well, then that's what will make it easy. You can write about it. And I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I started um, doing the Harveyville Fun Times. And I didn't know if anybody would read it, but back in the 90s, there was a little column called Fanzine Column in the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, and it was a free listing, so I wrote them a little letter and a sample copy of my first issue saying, hey, I'm doing a fanzine about Harvey Comics, can you plug it in the next book? And they did, and lo and behold, I got subscribers, and 
One of my fir- first, if not the first, subscriber was a guy named Jim Corcus, who's still around. He writes Disney books mainly nowadays. And I was a huge, huge fan of him. He had uh, wrote, written a column called Harlequin for a number of years in this animation magazine called Mind Draw. It was later called Animania. And But I was just floored. It's like, wow, this guy's writing to me. And... Um, I kept it up. I wrote, uh, or I didn't write it solely, but I, I published 75 issues from 1990 all the way to 2011. And actually, I came out like clockwork uh, for 64 of those issues. Um, and then when I switched to color, it got more expensive. And so I came out like three times a year, then twice a year, and then the last couple were once a year. But they were the slickest ones I ever did. But, uh, yeah, 75 issues. I finally had to give it up because uh, the next phase in my life came through is uh, uh, books. And I always wanted uh, to write books. I was about 18 or something when I wrote down this list once. And I just wrote down, you know, I don't know. I've looked at a couple times in my life since, but not recently. Uh, maybe about 20 things that I'd want to do in my life, just as goals. And I know one of them was write a book. Didn't even say anything about what it would be about. It was just write a book. And same thing happened with, like, the Harveyville Fun Times, is nobody wanted to publish me. The positive thing about the Harveyville Fun Times, at least in those days, is that it did get noticed by some publishers, and so I started writing articles for other people, and even got paid for some of those. And then, so, you know, and even now, like, I write for Back Issue Magazine and Alter Ego for Tomorrow's and uh, Hogan's Alley and things like that. So, you know, I try to keep freelance articles up as much as I can, and it's it's fun, and uh, I get some work every so often. But back to books, I was saying, oh, I've done Harveyville Fun Times for five years now, or eight years now, or ten years now. Uh, can you publish a book? And nobody was interested once again. And so I thought, hmm, how do I do it? And again, the little red hen adage, if... Uh, no one will publish me, I'll publish myself. Well, the problem with publishing myself on a book, uh, you know, publishing your own fanzine, where you just take it over to Kinko's or, you know, some sort of print shop and just print out copies, you know, is relatively inexpensive compared to a massive book. And it used to be in the old days that if you wanted to self-publish, you had to go through a professional printer and there usually was like a minimum print run of like a thousand copies and if nobody knew about your book and if you didn't get it in stores you just have a garage full of books and so a lot of uh, unsuccessful publishers that's what they do and then you know eventually they just give them out or throw them away and it was just a big monumental waste of money uh... so i didn't want to do it that way so and nobody else was publishing me, so publishing myself on a book kind of was an elusive goal because until this decade, the, or not this decade, the 2000s, I guess we're in the 2010s now and probably the 2020s by the time anybody hears this. Anyway, <laughs> excuse me. Um, I was going to different uh, comic book shows, and there's this one called The Ape, 
And uh, I noticed this one guy published a book compilation of all his uh, fanzines. And I started asking him about it. He did a Disney fanzine, which I forget the name of, if I can... uh, the Journal of Ride Theory, I'm leaning over, so if I sound funny. Uh, and I asked the guy, I said, how did you get this published? And he says, oh, I did it through Lulu. And Lulu still exists. You can still self-publish today with it, but there's plenty of others. Most people nowadays use CreateSpace, but, you know, at, at the time, 2005, 2006, Lulu was pretty much all there was to do. And my dad is a pretty good computer whiz about things and he and I uh, figured out how to do a book and it was just an exercise to see if I could do a book Uh, I decided if I was going to do my own book the easiest thing would be reprint my Harveyville Fun Times and just call it a best of which is exactly what I did I did write some new material for it but in general it was pretty much reprint I literally scanned every page of every issue I ever published and then cleaned up the pages that uh, I planned to use in the book. And that's how the book came about. And that was in 2006. And I've published, uh, or I haven't published personally, I've uh, been published uh, at least ten times since. And uh, I'll just kind of briefly run through... Uh, my um, different uh, books, you know, it looks like I'm getting close to the end of 30 minutes, but I, you know, I'll keep going if I, I'm not going to be a stickler on time. So, Best of Harveyville came, it, it, <laughs> take two, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times came out in 2006, and it actually did decently. It uh, got distributed through Diamond, through comic book stores, and it sold initially very well. It still sells okay now, but I mean, the book's over 10 years old. And uh, But it caught the interest of um, a different publisher, uh named Ben Ortmart, who publishes Bear Manor Media. I still work with him today. And uh, he had seen that I published a book. He also saw I had written a couple articles about uh, what happened to the guys who created Underdog in uh, Hogan's Alley magazine. And he says, do you think you can expand this into a book? And without flinching, I said, sure. Now, whether I really could do it, I don't know, because the interviews took up about six pages, maybe, of Hogan's Alley. It might have been a little bit longer. I don't have it in front of me, and I said, hmm, a book is usually longer than six pages, but I figure I can fudge it. <laughs> and also, you know, I could do more interviews. It wasn't like I was stuck on those two interviews. So I took on the project, and it became my second book, first outside published book called Created and Produced by Total Television Productions. And um, so that actually was uh, a successful book for me. Um, And that was done, uh, all of my books have been done on the print-on-demand way, which there's nothing really wrong with that. It's harder to get them in bookstores, but now today's with Amazon and eBay and everything else, uh, you just sell them that way for the most part. Uh, And so they've been consistent sellers. That one's a decent seller. 
Um, after it was published and was successful, Ben asked me, oh, what do you want to do next? And I go, I don't know. And at one point I had uh, said, because thanks to eBay, I started collecting uh, the back issues of Cracked Magazine and Sick Magazine and Lampoon and all the ones that I had missed and filled in the gaps in my collection. There's this little window of opportunity in the late 90s where you could literally get anything for nothing. So I got stacks of Cracked Magazine for like nothing because nobody knew really what they were worth. So I, I just kind of bragged one day. It's like, I own every issue of Cracked Magazine. And then... Ben came back to me another time and said, Hey, would you like to do the history of Cracked Magazine? And I said, Does anyone really care? And it turns out people do care, but it's like I just thought everybody liked Mad and thought all the other humor magazines stunk. Uh, but the the other magazines, they had their merits, and I learned something, and it was an interesting uh, book to do, and uh, it's a two-volume set because I did include an index, which some people have been bitter about, oh, the index took so much of the room, but people who really get into crack say it's a very valuable resource, especially if you have the ebook edition because it's searchable. So that came out as If You're Cracked, You're Happy, Volume 1, spelled W-O-N, and 2, spelled T-O-O, in 2011. Meantime, I didn't know it was going to be published by another publisher, so I had started after the best of the Harveyville Fun Times of my second book, and, and this one was just totally me trying to make a buck. I figure <laughs> I'm a big Beatles fan. I've been a big Beatles fan since 1977. And I said, you know, I'm just going to write a book about the Beatles. They sell. Well, it, unfortunately, it's been like my least seller. It's it's picked up over the years, but it's called Mark Arnold Picks on the Beatles, and I literally review every Beatles track, released and unreleased, and group and solo all the way up to from the beginning of time to 2011 and uh, uh, to make it interesting I, I reviewed everything and put little ratings and I had friends of mine and even people I didn't know contribute artwork uh, for the book and they'd get a copy of the book in uh, payment <laughs> because I didn't have a lot of money to uh, dole out on a self-published book and that part turned out successful. I like that part. And, um, you know, so that was my last venture in self-publishing, although I've still published a couple other other people's books uh, over the years. But, uh, you know, for myself, I've tried to stick with other publishers. My next book after that, um, after Cracked, um, Ben came to me again and said, what would you like to write about? And uh, I always was interested in Disney from the period after Walt Disney died and before Michael Eisner took over, which is roughly, uh, I, a little backstory, I was born literally the day Walt Disney died. So, um, there's always books on Disney that basically say, well, and Walt Disney died, and nothing happened, and then 20 years later, uh, Michael Eisner took over and revamped the company. And it's like, hey, you know, those 20 years, those are the years that I uh, 
you know, I actually was uh, watching these Disney movies, new and old. I mean, I like things like Bed Knobs and Broomsticks and the Apple Dumpling Gang and Strongest Man in the World and uh, the Aristocats and Robin Hood and Rescuers and all those things like that. And it's like, uh, so my goal was to write a book about that. It's called Frozen and Ice. And the story of Walt Disney Productions, 1966 to 1985. There's a funny thing about that uh, story is every time I write a book, I always check around on the Amazon and on the Internet all over just to see if somebody else has the same title because I don't want to use the same title uh, if I can help it. And uh, I wanted to call the Frozen Ice book, I wanted to call it... um, what would Walt do? Because that's a common thing that they said after Walt Disney died. What would Walt do? And I decided, oh, can't call it that. There was a book called that. So even though it wasn't the same concept as what I was talking about, it had the same title. So I changed my title to Frozen and Ice, which is kind of a play on uh, everybody thought Walt Disney was chirogenically frozen when he died. So... Um, the reason why it's a funny thing is the company literally was frozen in ice, uh, just like, uh, Walt Disney was after he died, even though it was a myth, actually about both, because, uh, the company, uh, made some great strides in seven, in the seventies and stuff like that. They opened Walt Disney World, and then in the eighties, they opened Epcot Center. Uh, they stagnated after Star Wars, though, and that's what happened, is they didn't keep progressing in the late seventies and early eighties, and that's why they had Michael Eisner take over. In any case, I changed the title to Frozen and Ice, and then, uh, Disney was working on an animated feature at the time, and it was about the Ice Princess, and then they decided, uh, they had done this a couple years earlier, they had, uh, Rapunzel, and they decided to change the name to Tangled. This time, they took the Ice Princess, and they decided to change it to Frozen, so it was kind of like a little happy accident, and everybody says, did you call yours Frozen because of the movie? And it's like, no, I didn't call it Frozen, it just happened, so. That's how that title came about. Um, Back in my mind, I always wanted to do my next book, which is also for Bear Manor, um, about the Patty Freeling. Uh, Animation historian Jerry Beck did an excellent book about Pink Panther, but he only really talked about the theatrical cartoons and didn't really talk about the TV stuff. And so I wanted to do a book that covered all the TV stuff, too, which I did. And... um, Hey, I've gone over 30 minutes. I'm going to keep going. How about that? I could cut it off and leave you hanging. No, I won't do that. So anyway, let's see how long I talk. Um, Anyway, back to Think Pink. Uh, That wasn't the title at first, but it's the obvious title. Uh, Interesting thing is there are books with the title Think Pink um, because uh, it's a slogan of uh, women's breast cancer awareness and it's been used for other things as well um in fact if we're talking about lawsuits this one i will uh mention there's other ones i won't but this one i'll mention for now uh this person was threatening legal action if i called my book think pink and i said well you can't have this you you don't have the trademark on that in fact i said think pink for pink panther way back in the 70s and even the 60s and uh, he was arguing oh it's for the breast cancer awareness blah 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 it's a trademark slogan and so i was doing my research and i had forgotten this but there's um 
the movie Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn, and the song that Kay Thompson sings is called Think Pink. And that was back in 1957. It predates Pink Panther. It predates the Breast Cancer Awareness Society, uh, whatever the name of their company is called. Uh, and uh, so, you know, shortly after that, after I pointed that, yeah, that out, the person who contacted me said, oh, it's all right, then you can go ahead with that title. Well, gee, thank you very much. I was the one who pointed out to you, you don't have a leg to stand on. This Think Pink phrase has been used a long time. Anyway, so that book came out. That was uh, wildly successful, and um, even uh, Jerry Beck had predicted, uh, he says, this will be your best book ever. I don't know if it's my best book ever, Jerry, but it certainly was at the time, and I, I do agree it's one of my better books, not to gloat too much. Ha, ha, ha. Um, after De Patty Frailing and Another Pet Project, I was always a fan of Dennis the Menace comic books, and I wanted to do a book about the comic books, but it expanded out because of all the interviews I was doing, that I covered the original Daily Panel and the Sunday comic and the J North black and white TV show and the animation shows and the live action features and everything else so I covered everything Dennis the Menace even the British Dennis the Menace and that came out in 2017 as Pocket Full of Dennis the Menace and my next book had a very lengthy genesis I won't go to all the nitty gritty details but I will say after I published the best of Harveyville Fun Times which was just a compilation of articles about Harvey uh, from my fanzine I really wanted to do a proper history book and over the years there were people who had attempted aborted uh, Harvey histories and I was kind of determined to be the one but if somebody else came out first I just have to kind of live with it fortunately through fortuitous timing and everything else my Harvey Comics companion did finally come out uh, but it was very lengthy genesis even before the best of the Harveyville fun times I was proposing a book and uh, John Cook did a magazine for Tomorrow's called um, Comic Book Artist, which I wrote a 20-page history of Harvey Comics at the time. And as soon as it was published, because he did a similar thing for Warren, uh, called the Warren Companion, after he did a comic book artist issue about Warren publications, I said, oh, we got to do a Harvey one. But the Harvey issue didn't sell very well, and so there was no impetus at that time. Flash forward 10 years later, then uh, Tomorrow's approached me, John Morrow did, and said, hey, would you like to do the Harvey Comics Companion? And it's like, what a difference 10 years makes. Uh, a lot of the people had passed away. Uh, fortunately, I'd done so many interviews over the years that uh, I was able to cobble together a book. But it would have been nice to have gotten the assignment a few years earlier so I could have asked a few more questions. But I think it came out really well. And uh, it was ready to publish as early as 2015 when my Think Pink book came out. But uh, there's... Um, a lot of delays, and I won't go into the nitty-gritty details, but it ended up at Bear Manor as well, finally being published in 2017. And like 2011, I had three books. So um, I did my first uh, book uh, with a co-author. His name is Michael A. Ventrella. And uh, 
we decided to team up together to do a monkey's book. And originally, Michael, I'll say this, he used to publish Animato, so that's where I first found out about him, another animation magazine. And he interviewed me at the time when I did my Disney book. And so we became friends. And uh, my friend Greg Beta had actually approached me a few years before saying, let's do a monkey's book. And it's like, I really didn't want to do a monkey's book because the Beatles book didn't do that well. It took a lot of time and energy and effort, and I just didn't want to do it. But for some reason, uh, Michael, probably be because he's a lawyer in his spare time, uh, <laughs> gave me a very persuasive argument to doing a monkey's book. And we did it, and we got it out in record time, which is kind of amazing because, you know, it usually takes me a couple years, but I think we did it in less than a year, which hadn't happened for a long time with me because all my books, like I said, take at least a couple years to do. So... It finally came out with a long title, and it is called Long Title, which is Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey's Songs One by One. Uh, has a great cover by Scott Shaw. Actually, all my books have great covers. I've had Mike Kazala do a cover. John Severin did a cover. Uh, uh, Frank Hill did a cover for the Pink Panther. Uh, Jeff Little did for the um, Disney book. Uh, uh, Let's see, Bill Morrison, which I couldn't think of his name, sorry Bill, uh, did the cover for the Beatles book uh, for an aborted Yellow Submarine book, which finally came out in 2018. Uh, so I'm very thankful, Bill. And Bill is now the editor of Mad Magazine, so, and he used to work on The Simpsons for years and worked at Disney way back at The Little Mermaid and things like that. So he's been around, he's a very good friend, and uh, he contributed my cover to the Beatles book, which eventually did get used in his Yellow Submarine adaptation. If, if you haven't picked that up, pick it up. It's very good. Anyway, so, um, back to long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkeys Hung One by One. Um, we did some interviews with various people who worked with the monkeys, uh, including Peter Noon, the guy in Hermit's Hermits, and uh, uh, or fans like David Peel, but, uh, and I, I met the a uh, guy who played Eddie Munster on the Munsters, he was on an episode forgive me for not remembering your real name right at the top of my head, but you know I, I don't have, a, you know, a lot of people ask me this, I will do a little side story they go, why don't you know this Mark? And I go, well, that's why I wrote the book, because I don't have to keep all this information in my head. I can go to the book and look it up, because people ask me, well, don't you know this? And I go, let me check my book. I, I do remember most of it, and it's not like I'm brain dead. It's just that, you know, that's why I write the book, so it gets it down on paper so I have a place to reference, and so I don't have to keep it in my head. Um, so that's where we're at and uh, as far as my books the published ones uh, have a few more coming out pretty soon and so I'll talk about those and you know there might be future projects after the, well there should be um, I will say before I say my future books uh, I've also done some audio commentaries and some video uh, presentations on some various DVDs. I did Casper, an underdog in Tennessee Tuxedo for Shout Factory a few years back. And in recent times, I've been working with Greg Ford doing commentaries on all the Patty Freeling 
compilations, uh, doing all the theatrical ones. So we started off with uh, The Inspector and Roland and Ratfink, Ant and the Aardvark, Blue Racer, Hoot Clute, Dogfather. I know some of these probably aren't familiar to you. Um, Texas Toads, actually originally called Tijuana Toads, uh, Crazy Lakes Crane, and then now we're currently working on Pink Panther because there's lots of Pink Panther volumes. And I do regular commentary similarly to how I'm speaking now, is just recording commentary into my digital recorder and uh, sending it off, and then it appears on the DVD. So that's where I'm doing that as well um but to the books I'm uh I finished writing Alvin uh the story of Ross Bagdasarian Jr. Liberty Records format films and the Alvin show I love these long titles like this uh hopefully that'll be out by Christmas 2018 uh, I have one, another one that's uh, written that uh, needs to be approved by the Warren Kramer family. Uh, it's called Friendly Ghosts, Little Devils, Giants, and Rich Kids, The Art and Creations of Warren Kramer, who was the premier artist over at Harvey Comics and did a lot of other things that most people don't know. He was actually an excellent artist, and he should be revered the same level of, I believe, like Will Eisner or Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, but because he did casper and richie rich you know he's not even uh revered as much as say dan DiCarlo or carl barks which is sad but unfortunately true um i'm trying to remedy that and reverse that with this book so and it has a lot of interviews with the family and actual interviews with warren himself i didn't do them because they were long before i ever got into contact with warren uh the Monkeys book actually has been my most successful book, but I have to share the profits. Darn it. Uh, anyway, so I've gotten the go-ahead. Uh, uh, ben Omar wanted a sequel, and so we were working on a sequel. I like this title. I don't know if it's going to be called this because uh, Michael put it up for a vote, and, you know, we haven't finalized it, but I'm going to put it. The working title is Getting the Monkeys Off Our Backs, uh, the solo recordings of Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Mike. And so it may come out with that title, it may not, but it's supposed to be out in 2019. It might be 2020, depending on how we, you know, it's in progress right now. The other one I'm working on now is the TTV scrapbook. Um, when I did the total television book with Underdog and Tennessee Tuxedo way back in 2009, uh, there was a couple errors. Ooh, I hate errors. Uh, I found I, there is a person in the book that I said was dead and at least as of this recording he is still very much alive his name is Harvey Siegel and I ended up interviewing him in 2014 I am now in 2018 finally transcribing this interview uh, literally starting today when I'm recording this I'm taking a break to record this uh, special podcast number one (laughs) but uh Anyway, I realized also since that book came out almost 10 years ago, there's a lot of information that I didn't put. And also, since that time, all the original creators of Total Television have since passed. And I have all the stuff I didn't publish for their interviews, so I'm probably going to put their entire interviews. Uh, These four are Buck Biggers, Chet Stover, Tred Covington, and Joe Harris. And um, Victoria Biggers, who's Buck Biggers' daughter, uh, reached out to me about a year or so ago, and she said she found these scrapbooks that had tons and tons of images and things like that that I had never seen or she had never seen. So uh, she's going to be co-writing that book with me. 
and we're looking for 2020 as a release date. So, you know, that's pretty much up to date on uh, where we are on, uh, you know, my projects and everything like that. So, you know, what's next for me? I don't know. Uh, I've contemplated doing a book about Joe Flynn uh, <laughs> or Victor Bono. That one was suggested by Ben Omard. And, you know, because I did the Cracked Magazine one, maybe more Cracked. Uh, I'm thinking about doing a book about Crazy Magazine, uh, trying to work with the Simon family to get a book about Sick Magazine out. Um, but until some, I sign my name on the dotted line, you know, it's all hypothetical. I could write a book about Tolstoy if I wanted to, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I hear the music, so we're kind of getting near the end here. And how long I've been talking? Hey, almost an hour. Wow. Um, so I hope this was of interest to you. I've had uh, people encouraging me, like I said, Donna Barr and Greg Vita and Lee Hester all encouraging me to do a podcast. I don't know if I'll do this regularly, but at least I can do one once in a while and just kind of talk about things. I, I'd probably talk about more specifics of like, Harvey or something like that on the next one and you know I have interviews I can play audio clips records whatever um, I'll just uh, let this go out with the fade out uh, this is what I consider my theme song is stomping at the Savoy this is the Benny Goodman version but I prefer the Charlie Watts version but they've taken it down off of YouTube so Anyway, uh, enjoy the rest of the song, and this is Mark Arnold signing off from the Fun Ideas Podcast. Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. Everything that I've talked about is copyright 2018 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much and have a good night.